Hello and welcome to All Indians Matter. I am Ashraf Engineer. Till recently, you couldn't find a place more idyllic than Lakshadweep. 36 islands, only 10 of which are inhabited, about 320 kilometers off the southwestern coast of India. That changed when the union government appointed Praful Khoda Patel as administrator, who kicked off a number of controversial proposals that residents oppose. These range from infrastructure to tourism, and he's also ordered a crackdown that includes a sedition case against Aisha Sultana, a popular model, actress and filmmaker who criticized Patel. Islanders are enraged, pointing to the potential eco-hazards posed by the projects and what they call an attack on their identity, culture, religion and land. Why are the Lakshadweep Islands ecologically important and why is development not based on the local context a grave danger? All Indians matter. We have on the show Rohan Arthur, a marine biologist with the Nature Conservation Foundation. He works in the Indian Ocean on coral reefs, seagrass meadows and other coastal ecosystems. For the last two decades, he has been concerned with how global climate change has been modifying the coral reefs of the Lakshadweep archipelago and the consequences this is likely to have on the habitability of these islands. Welcome to the show, Rohan. Thanks for having me on the show, Ashraf. It's, it's great to be here. Rohan, one of the biggest flashpoints in the Lakshadweep is the land acquisition policy that allows the government to take over land for infrastructure projects. Could you explain why this is a problem and what impact badly thought out infrastructure can have on Lakshadweep's ecology? So I think that most of your listeners listening to the podcast you know, would, would already have some idea of the eminent domain policies that are being proposed uh, for Lakshadweep. I mean, briefly, these proposed legislations seek to declare any portion of land anywhere in the Lakshadweep as necessary for the development of the archipelago and can override traditional ownership of the land. So this in itself, I think, is an instrument of some, you know, of absolute eye-watering authoritarianism and disenfranchisement. What you must remember is that, you know, what we're talking about here are tiny strips of land. It's a total of 32 square kilometers with some 70,000 people living on them. So while in the mainland, it be possible to conceive of displacement with, with all the institutional violence that it involves. In a place like Lakshadweep, you hit on a very simple fact of geography. With virtually every habitable piece of land already occupied, it is difficult to know where displaced people would go unless you, you start building houses in the lagoon or you send them to the mainland. So, of course, the larger problem, of course, is that the proposed infrastructural plans seem to be put together without any Know, real understanding of the ecological fragility of these islands. And that, for me, is actually the bigger, bigger concern. You know, where the Lakshadweep stands right now, and I'm sure we'll be talking about this through this uh, conversation as well, it, it faces serious existential threats you know, from climate change and, and rapid urbanization. This is not something I say lightly at all. At, you know, what is at stake is uh, very much the habitability of these islands. You know, and I think that what reckless infrastructure development uh, can do is that it may serve to only speed up the catastrophe towards which uh, Lakshadweep seems to be headed. And that's my bigger concern. Rohan, the government has said that it wants to turn Lakshadweep into another Maldives. However, marine biologists and environmentalists oppose this plan. Could you explain why? Well, that would seem like the most natural thing uh, to do, wouldn't it? I mean, the Maldives is in many ways a uh, you know, sister archipelago of Lakshadweep. It is a poster child of paradise tourism development. So, you know, so much of when we think of uh, you know white sand beaches, palm trees, blue lagoons, etc., our minds immediately paint a picture of the Maldives. You know, immediately when you think about those things, you're thinking of the Maldives. And 
on the face of it, it seems a, a shame not to cash in on this untapped potential that the luxury holds. Why couldn't we be thinking about luxury when we're thinking about these, uh, when we're painting this picture? So despite its proximity and the shared geology and all the rest of it, the Maldives and the luxury are actually very different places. And these differences are, are critical. Uh, and those differences can make all the difference in uh, the kind of tourism these islands can take. And I think that's why um, many of us uh, see this as a, you know, as a wrong-headed idea. Uh, could you explain how they are different geographically, ecologically? Well, so geologically, the islands are very similar. Okay, They belong to the same oceanic ridge. It runs below the Indian Ocean, uh, all the way from the, from, uh, the Lakshadweep all the way down to Chagos. They're both coral atolls, which means they're both formed by the same biological processes. Thousand year, thousands of years of living coral that grow around an old volcano that you know the volcano eventually sinks, leaving by, behind these spectacular coral atolls, circular coral atolls and shallow lagoons that we are so familiar with. You know, uh, And because of their proximity, the Maldives and the Lakshadweep also have a shared common history with very deep links to the, to the Indian Ocean trade. But you know, I think that's where the similarities stop. Um, the biggest difference is actually the easiest to understand. The Maldives has something more than 1,100 islands. Only 185 of them are occupied. That's like 15% of the islands are occupied. In contrast, Lakshadweep has only 36 islands. Most of them are tiny islets with no drinking water, and they can't support human populations. That's one big difference. Okay? That we don't have the same number of islands as the, as, uh, as the Maldives. And um, most of those islands can't support human populations. Uh, the other thing is that the human population density in the Lakshadweep, it's more than 2,000 people per square kilometer, making it among the densest parts of, of rural India. And that's about twice uh, what Maldives is. Of course, Malay is heavily, is very densely populated, very, very heavily densely populated, but the rest of the, of the, of the Maldives has very light populations. It's about a thousand people per square kilometer. Now, both the Maldives and Lakshadweep have experienced devastating series of climate change uh, catastrophes over the last two decades. And both have left the reefs in uh, the archipelagos battered and they're barely limping uh, as they try to recover from these events. Uh, in the Maldives, the pressure of high-end tourism on the, on the reefs is huge. You know, it puts a huge strain on freshwater energy resources uh, and very few of the profits of that tourism model actually go to local communities. So the question that I would ask is, why would we want to replicate a model that is so fraught with problems on an archipelago that is already reeling with its own set of challenges? Why that? Why would do that is anyone's guess. Right. In fact, uh, taking on from that, the locals oppose the tourism plans, in fact, because they say that it will impact their way of sustainable living. And this includes fishing, coconut plantations and so on. So tell us a little bit about this sustainable way of living and what happens when that is disrupted. So first of all, I'd say that not, not everyone opposes it. There will be people who, you know, the, the island group is, it's not just one homogenous, homogenous community. There are lots of different uh, uh, voices in the community with lots of different perspectives on this. But for the most part, yes, the islanders are uh, you know, rejecting many of the, plan, the, uh, the plans that the administration is proposing. The living on the, you know, on an island, you come to understand the nature of ecological limits, you know, much, much more closely when, uh, than, than uh, much more clearly than on a mainland. I mean, the limits are out there, you know, staring you in the face. In the, in the case of the Lakshadweep, the reef crest itself is the most dramatic limit. It represents where your habitable space ends 
and the vast Indian Ocean begins. And so living within those bounds that these limits place is not just desirable, it is in many ways, in the case of Lakshadweep, a matter of life and death. So I wouldn't say that everything that the islanders do is inherently um, sustainable. These are not some noble savages. Okay. The Lakshadweep is on a path of rapid urbanization. There's a growing educated middle class with strong and very justified entrepreneurial ambitions. Okay. A decade ago, most people would be happy with a stable government job or happy going fishing or whatever. Not anymore. People are looking for opportunities everywhere. Some of these options can be dangerously unsustainable as well. Uh, but for the longest possible time, you know, the economic mainstays of Lakshadweep have, have uh, you know, has had, have had a fairly small ecological footprint. Coconut is the primary land-based crop. It's, it's pretty much everywhere. And it has, uh, has been an important part of the economy since the Lakshadweep was first occupied. In fact, it made living in the Lakshadweep possible. In the old days, it formed the basis of trade uh, with the mainland. It was largely exchanged for, for rice and for other goods, which went on these large sail ships from the Lakshadweep to the mainland. Uh, today, it is mostly copra that dominates, and coconut cultivation still takes place in small individual land holdings, which are you know, owned by individual families that do this pretty much as a small cottage industry. Uh, the other mainstay is, is pelagic fishing for tuna. And uh, the tuna here is caught using a Poland line fishery where uh, the fish are caught essentially one at a time from an entire shoal. And so if you think about it, if you're catching a fish one at a time, it places natural limits on how much can be caught. Essentially, it's limited by how much muscle power you have, apart from the how many fish you have as well. And of course, it, it, uh, li it is limited by how much uh, you can fit in a small fishing boat. So that places natural limits on, you know, on uh, large-scale harvesting of the, of the tuna. And of course, there are problems. The, you know, the fishery is dependent on live bait, which is caught from the lagoon and the nearby waters, which as a result of harvesting, as well as climate change and other factors, uh, this bait fish is on the decline and that needs careful management. But you know, by and large, this fishery has the potential to be highly sustainable. And the other thing is that it has been a great livelihood option for Lakshadweep uh, since it was first introduced in the 1970s and 1980s. And you know, also, you need to remember that this fishery was actually introduced by the government as a developmental activity for the islands. And it has been fantastic. And the government needs to be really congratulated for, for introducing this uh, to the islands. And uh, it's been hugely successful. And I think that needs much, much more support. So, Ron, given what you said about the geological uh, nature of these islands, the fact that there's no drinking water on so many of them, and the fact that sustainable ways of living are important, is it accurate to say that the islands present limited opportunities for development of the kind that is being mooted right now? Well, if you were asking me if it has limited opportunities for development, I would say no, not really. You know, I think opportunities for development are large. It just depends on how you define a development and to, and to what end you want to develop the island. Yeah. I think my question was specifically to the kind of development that is being mooted right now. Right. So, you know, I spoke earlier about these limits, the, these ecological boundaries that define atoll islands like Lakshadweep. And, and I think that there is certainly space for development within those boundaries, as long as we respect those boundary conditions. Uh, what, I, what is clear, and I suspect we will talk about this later, is that between climate change and urbanization, these boundaries are, re are reducing and they're becoming much, much more fragile. So 
every developmental activity, whatever it is, in my opinion, needs to be examined through uh, the lens of these socio-ecological boundaries within the reality of climate change. Can these islands take it? How will it affect island habitability? How will it improve uh, quality of life? These are the important questions by, through which you need to look at uh, any developmental activity. So if we think about development as say, improving the quality of life, I think there's a lot that can be done. And it should be done to develop this archipelago, starting with healthcare, care of the elderly, securing fresh water, making sure that land and beach erosion are contained, ensuring that, you know, uh, I don't local enterprise is encouraged and supported, that there is much more uh, emphasis on place-based uh, education, for instance. Uh, these are the kinds of developments that I would look that this is what development would look like to me, you know, where the benefits of development accrue directly to local communities. And, you know, and where there is a resilient ecology, which is supported and enhanced. I think above all, development needs to support the buffer capacity of these islands, the ability of these reefs and the islands to buffer the looming threat of climate change. I think this is possible. It can bring new developmental vision to the, to the islands that solely needs it. It just needs, I think, a more imaginative way of conceiving of development. And for me, the failure of imagination is largely what concerns me about the current plans. It really represents for me a true failure of imagination of how to conceive of, of true development on places like the like Lakshadweep. That, that's, that's a very important point. Uh, Rohan, there's another big flashpoint, the imposition of a beef ban. There's also the reversal of the alcohol ban. Uh, while all this is controversial for political reasons, of course, uh, could you explain how imposing culture from the outside has an impact on the residents of Lakshadweep. So Ashraf, you know, I don't think I'd like to comment on the, you know, the tone-deaf politics of culture that these regulations imply. I think it's well beyond my sphere of expertise to make any judgments there. What I will say is that uh, Lakshadweep represents a fairly unique social ecological system and where you cannot separate the ecology from the functioning of uh, Lakshadweep society. You know, a set of strong cultural institutions keep the social fabric together. They're rooted in a you know, deep shared history that everyone on the island uh, has that connects them, first of all, to the mainland of India on the one hand and to the larger Indian Ocean on the other hand. Okay. Uh, from my experience, the islanders are proud Lakshadweepans and equally proud Indians. I think it's important to keep that in mind. And I really think we need to celebrate this unique identity and certainly respect it. You know, for its own sake, okay, I think, uh, you know, uh, and because it is part of the larger social ecological dynamics on these islands, I think we really need to, we need to respect this culture. And I think it would be a crying shame to lose this uh, to some kind of a blinkered and divisive politics. Right. Now, let's talk about the coral reefs for a bit now. Uh, there are already multiple episodes of coral reefs dying and endangering the safety network of atolls, livelihoods of locals and survival of marine ecosystems. The threat of cyclones and thunderstorms is also on the rise. So climate change is already affecting the archipelago. Could you detail that a little bit for us? So, you know, that if I have a single soapbox, this would be it. So uh, for the last two decades, my, my team has been trying to grapple with how uh, climate change is affecting the Lakshadweep reefs. Um, since 98, we've been, since 1998, we've been revisiting the same reefs again and again uh, to see how they've been faring, you know, as sea uh, temperatures rise, as storms keep passing through. And what we've seen is a, a kind of gradual ratcheting down of the system. 
each time the reef dies, it takes several years for it to recover. It can take up to a decade for it to recover. What is happening now is that before the reefs can fully recover, another large disturbance comes through, either as an ocean warming event or a storm. And the whole process is to start all over again. Uh, where, we start, where we stand right now, the reef is in a state of what I call constant recovery. So it's never given the chance to fully recover. It's in a state of constant recovery. Of course, this repeated, with these repeated battering, some, some things are lost. There are some species that won't make it. The character of the, of the reef has changed. You know, some, uh, uh, it's certainly not the, the reefs that I knew back in 1996 when I first saw it, and I don't think it ever will be. I, I've given up hoping that, it will, uh, you know, that we will ever see the reefs of the past. And what we are holding on to is some basic level of functions that we hope that, we can, that the reef will maintain. Okay. But all of this through my experience is that you know, if, if I ever doubted it before, I don't think there's any doubt anymore that climate change is by far the biggest threat to these systems. Uh, you know, and all the studies coming out of the islands point in the same direction. Our long-term work is showing this. A recent paper by IIT Kharagpur suggests that what 80% of the islands will face problems of inundation over the next half century. You know, there are other studies that are talking about complete island loss, and still others warn of the decline uh, of the availability and the uh, uh, and the quality of freshwater across all the islands. All of these, I think, are warning signs that climate change is with us in the Lakshadweep. And it is likely to be the biggest challenge the islands will uh, have to face in what is left of this of this century. Ron, is it accurate to say that the health of the coral reefs is an indicator of climate change, of course, but also the future livability of the islands? And uh, I know you already talked a little bit, little bit about the present state of the reefs, but could you detail it a little more? Yeah. So, I mean, you asked about whether they are indicators. So often you will hear that the coral reef is the, is the canary in the coal mine of climate change, right? So reefs are particularly vulnerable to climate change. They are among the most vulnerable of all ecosystems in the world to the effects of climate change. And that is because uh, with even small changes in ocean temperature, uh, the, the, the coral reef dies. Okay. So uh, on atolls in particular, okay, they are essentially made up entirely of coral. And you know, the dying of the reef warns of something even more dire and immediate than these, you know, uh, insidious effects of climate change. So by affecting the coral reef, what climate change is doing on, a, on an atoll is it's shutting off the engine of island growth and maintenance. So because uh, the coral is so important for the island itself, because all the island itself is constructed of coral, by killing off the coral, it's shutting off that engine of island growth. Okay? And in addition, you know, as erosional processes start taking over from, from these growth processes, uh, the atoll framework itself is growing more fragile and it's breaking apart. That's really, really scary. So what we know now from of sea level rise for the region, and that's about, depending on which scenario you believe, it's, it's either 0.8 with, uh, meters per, uh, over the next uh, century or two meters over the next century, uh, depending on how optimistic or catastrophic you want to be. And this can start becoming a very a big problem as the sea levels rise. So, you know, on the one hand, you have the framework of the reef itself declining. On the other hand, you have sea levels rising. And if the reef cannot keep up with sea level rise, the normal protection the atoll framework provides the islands will no longer be enough. So typically, we have a, a kind of rule of thumb that if the reef is not able to keep up 
to about 0.5 meters of, uh, of sea level rise, you're going to start seeing problems of habitability on these islands. And they will start, uh, you're going to experience them in terms of inundation, saline ingress, which means seawater entering into the freshwater sources, uh, increasing land erosion okay, of the beaches and then of the rest of the land as well. Remember, we're talking about islands that are one or two meters above sea level at, the, at maximum. Uh, and a host of other related problems. So between all of these, you know, it, the, these can be serious problems for the islands. So our recent studies have shown that for the capital, for instance, the reefs have already begun eroding faster than they are growing. So already that balance has tipped over. And what this means is that many Lakshadweep islands are going to face the option of having to be evacuated within this century. That this is just a reality that we have to face up to and do something about it's quite scary, Ron. Uh, there have also been major coral bleaching events, 1998, 2010, 2016, with the last one being the most intense. So what is a bleaching event and why must we take note of it? Much of what I've been speaking about earlier in terms of these, these declines are actually being caused by uh, bleaching and subsequent mortality. And so, and yes, we talked about, you talked about uh, bleaching in 98, 2010 and 2016, but actually there's been another bleaching event just last year in 2020 during the pandemic and because of the pandemic i wasn't around to document it but uh, researchers on the ground from the department of science and technology in Lakshadweep itself uh, they've been reviewing it and they've told me that the damage has been really extensive so what is a bleaching event and you know that coral lives in a kind of tight symbiotic relationship with uh, with an algae it's called the zooxanthellae and this uh, zooxanthellae uses sunlight to photosynthesize and produce food, which the coral uses. So typically, more than 90% of the food that the coral requires is actually produced by the algae. The coral is capable of feeding uh, on its own, but more than 90% of the food is given to it by, by the algae. And as long as the conditions are good, this relationship works out really well for both the zooxanthellae as well as for the coral. Uh, however, under conditions of stress, different kinds of stress, the coral expels the zooxanthellae, throws it out, and loses all its color. That's what bleaching is. I mean, if you look at a bleach reef, it really looks like all the color has been drained out of the of the coral. It looks quite beautiful, actually. The entire reef turns completely white, uh, but it's a, it's it's quite scary as well because you know even though a bleach coral is not is not dead, um, you know if the stressful conditions continue for longer than a few days or for weeks, then the coral will essentially starve to death. So that's what happens. And uh, when a bleaching event occurs, you can have entire kilometers of reefs uh, that are affected and eventually uh, a large part of that dies. That's what I saw in 98, where more than 80% of the reef, um, of many of the reefs that I was serving, just died within about a span of some three weeks. And that's what's happening worldwide as the oceans heat up. And you have these dramatic El Nino events that affect the Pacific and Indian Oceans. So the El Nino leaves behind a huge amount of coral mortality uh, in its wake. So you know, what is the El Nino? Well, it's essentially a current of, of this warm water that starts off on the west coast of South America that soon courses through the oceans and raises ocean temperatures uh, by several degrees, particularly along the tropics, uh, but all the way down to the Antarctic as well. Um, and so the El Nino is a, it is a natural phenomenon. But what is happening is that global warming is completely messing up with these current systems. And earlier, these El Nino events, these intense El Nino events, they were a phenomenon that occurred once every 20, 30 years. 
but now it is becoming increasingly frequent, you know, once every four years, every five years. Uh, and we hold our breath every year right now, wondering if it's going to be an El Nino year or not. So around April or May, you know, we're just hoping that the temperatures stay down so that we don't have another El Nino year. So, you know, as you said, the Lakshadweep have experienced three and, and now four El Nino events, each worse than the previous one. So although the reefs have shown some kind of resistance, that means each time, the, even though the, re, the El Ninos themselves have been more intense each time, uh, less of the total amount of live coral is dying. So that's some that's showing some uh, potential for resistance. It's just that they don't have enough time to recover uh, before the next one hits. So right now, from what we are measuring, at the rate at which reefs are recovering, they will require three decades at least without another disturbance to completely recover. Of course, three decades is not the time they have because we know that they're going to get another El Nino in another few years and we start all over again. Rohan, I want to refer to the Justice Ravindran Committee report of 2014. It recommended that we prioritize protection of corals, seagrass, and other ecosystems from activities such as waste disposal, dredging, port development, tourism, sand mining, etc. Now, experts have said that development frameworks should be based on, quote-unquote, precautionary principles. Could you detail this? So, the Justice Ravindran Committee uh, was set up essentially to sort out a dispute between the Lakshadweep administration and uh, local and local resort owners over the construction of their properties, which were too close to the shore. Uh, you know, and long story short, uh, as a result of that case, a committee was set. The Justice Ravindran Committee was set up, and they actually took a very broad mandate. They set themselves a mandate of looking across the board at uh, developmental plans for the islands in the context of the ecological fragility of this, this uh, of the place, and you know. I have to say that this report is an, is an incredibly far-sighted document, you know, and it re- recognized the unique fragility of the islands, and the need and to need the need to develop it with really careful planning. And what it did is that it recommended that all development uh, uh, that needs to be done needs to be done within the ambit of something called an integrated island management plan. That every island needs to have its own integrated island management plan, and the island management plans map out the the current human and ecological infrastructures of the islands, so where the coral reefs are, where the where the beaches are, where the mangrove patches are, the few mangrove patches that are there, where the seagrass meadows are, uh, and also where the human infrastructure is, where the ports are, you know, where the harbors are, where the uh, houses are, etc. And based on this information, set out a clear set of do's and don'ts for each area based on the fragility of the place. Uh, and on and on current land use practices as well. It also placed very clear limits on the nature of these activities. Okay, so in, for instance, uh, according to the Justice Ravindran Committee report, it didn't allow any commercial fishing on the reef, although sustenance fishing was clearly allowed. So you could fish for the house, you could fish for uh, local consumption, but not for any uh, uh, for commercial export. Um, so it is also very clear that all forms of rampant extraction or other activities that would impact the ecology of the islands was would not be allowed. So I think in many ways, for me, the Justice Ravindran uh, report is a roadmap for resilient development on the islands. It's not perfect. I mean, for instance, it, it doesn't mention climate change, which for me is a you know is is the thing that I think that it would be at the center of a, of a report like that. But I think it's a very good start. 
right so rohan what's the need of the hour? how do we not just preserve this delicate ecosystem but also bring about coral recovery to the extent that it can be recovered well i think for a start we need to get back to the justice ravindran committee recommendations i mean if we can just follow those uh, those recommendations in both letter as well as in spirit i'd be much more than happy okay uh, i think more broadly you know you'll know where i'm coming from we need to wake up and face the reality of climate change on these islands okay we're talking about 70000 people facing the reality of internal dis- displacement within the next few decades we should be less sanguine about it than we are you know uh right now it seems to fall on a policy blind spot and which we really need to move beyond i mean look at the maldives and the you know the island group which we are most often comparing to the luxembourg in many ways the maldives are defined on the international political stage as ambassadors of climate change they are fighting well above their their weight class okay, on the rights of small islands in the face of climate change they're tiny little island that should account for nothing as a political class but they they actually have become the ambassadors of of climate change uh, for the rest of the world and you know luxembourg faces exactly the same fate in many respects as the maldives but it doesn't share the same narrative of urgency or of action instead we are moving in the opposite direction so uh i think that eventually we will need global action on climate change if i'm you know if i'm realistic if i'm being truly honest that global action is the only thing that is going to reverse these el nino events and things like that okay and there's no getting beyond it i mean this is something that india needs to do needs to lobby for strongly and i think we need to share some of the responsibility as well okay so far we have been very good at arguing for our rights i think that we need to start sharing some of those responsibilities as well while at the same time still uh, you know reserving our rights to develop because of the, the genuine needs of our well-being of the people and all the rest of it but the impacts of our activities india's included along with the united states and europe and all the rest are being faced in places like luxembourg and so those impacts we can't step away from for i and i and even as i say this i realize that for places like luxembourg it may not be enough okay but we might still have to try okay the, the one thing when we talk about climate change our natural response is always of paralysis particularly when you come from a small island like luxembourg what can a small island of 32 square kilometers with almost no power no autonomy no autonomous power at all what can they do in the face of a force as global and as pervasive as climate change you know, it's this huge thing when an el nino is coming along there's nothing much you can do and so this is you know that's that really the response at every level is one of paralysis but you know what our work is showing is that what you do locally does make a difference so even though you can't actually do much about climate change impacts per se when it comes to the resilience of your reef and the resilience of your island what you do locally counts okay so if you manage your fishing properly if you manage pollution levels if you plan your development and infrastructure properly you can actually delay the worst consequences of climate change you can build that resilience to the best of possible you know, to uh, the the best that the that the system can give you so i think in the final analysis it may well be that lakshadweep has a limited future but uh i think it is up to the local people of the lakshadweep to decide uh, what to do with that future yeah, i really think it is up to them to decide what constitutes a good life you know, what constitutes well being 
uh, and what they, when they think of a just and equitable development, what do they believe it is? I'm sure they will choose wisely okay, uh, if they're given a choice. They've been there for the last 1,500 years and they've been living relatively well for those 1,500 years. I'm sure that's not an accident. So Rohan, here's a question I ask all my guests at the end. Why do you do this work? Uh, well, you know, to be honest, Ashraf, I stumbled into Lakshadweep through a series of, uh, of serendipities. I don't think I plan to work there, certainly not to spend the bulk of my intellectual life on the islands. Uh, but I guess having worked there all this time, the Lakshadweep has, to some extent, spoiled me for other places. You know, it's, it's a spectacularly beautiful place. But apart from being beautiful, it has, you know, it has given me a hell of a lot. I mean, it, was, it has been an intellectual playground, playground for me. It's been a place to, to, um, you know, to find, to create, and to test ideas on ecology and society. It's really been a crucible of creativity for me. And uh, if I, if, you know, after all these years, I don't think I'll be able to do anything else very well. You know, I guess that's why I continue to do this work. Rohan, thank you for this hugely enlightening conversation and also for helping us understand Lakshadweep better. Thank you. Thank you all for listening. Please visit allindiansmatter.in, that's A-L-L-I-N-D-I-A-N-S-M-A-T-T-E-R.in for more columns and audio podcasts. You can follow me on Twitter at Ashraf Engineer, that's A-S-H-R-A-F-E-N-G-I-N-E-R and All Indians Count, that's A-L-L-I-N-D-I-A-N-S-C-O-U-N-T. Search for the All Indians Matter page on Facebook. On Instagram, the handle is All Indians Matter. Email me at editor at allindiansmatter.in. Catch you again soon. <laughs>